Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. From Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read uh, verses 1 and 2. Would you please stand for the reading? Paul writing to the church at Rome, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. I was both honored and humbled when uh, David extended the invitation to me to preach on this Sunday uh, on this theme, an important one for this church to think deeply. Um, He said, I know you're United Methodist and you are the president of an institution of higher education. While we're not a United Methodist school, we are approved by the University Senate of the United Methodist Church. And I know our history well, and we have founded more colleges and universities and seminaries than just about any other denomination has, because education is important to us as a people. Um, I also am very grateful for the relationship between the seminary and Boston Avenue. Our uh, faculty is in your Sunday school classes very often. And as I'm out and about in the community and various organizations, I can't tell you how important the people of Boston Avenue are to uh, the good causes around this town. If you extracted all of you Boston Avenue folks who are involved in uh, civic betterment, uh, interfaith or ecumenical relations, Tulsa would be a much, much weaker city. You add to the strength of it tremendously And I know that also has something to do with the very permission-giving and encouraging leadership from your pastoral staff. So you're to be commended for all of that. When I graduated from seminary in 1981, I thought I knew something. And after a few years of frustrating experiences in my first appointment as an associate at a large church in suburban Chicago, uh, working with the confirmation program, I thought confirmation was the place that I ought to show something where I learned. Um, My experience in that first few years was akin, or at least made me aware of, um, what is a little pastor's occupational humor when we define confirmation as teaching kids who don't want to be there things they don't want to know. Uh, The program I inherited uh, was one of these Wednesday afternoon after school for some number of weeks leading up to uh, Easter time when we would confirm these 12-year-olds. I don't recall what we wanted to happen in the program, but I very much remember, as we did an evaluation of it each year, that the basic takeaways for the confirmands were, uh, in response to the question, what does it mean to be a Christian, they said, well... Uh, to read the Bible, pray, and go to church. Um, Those are all good things. But none of the staff thought that that set of behaviors was sufficient for living as a Christian. 
Our further experience at the church was that when the sixth grade confirmands completed their program, it was treated like graduation. Once confirmed, over half left the church and came back when they were married and had a child. Now at that time, in that congregation, most of the Christian education emphasis was on children. Most of the resources were spent on children. There was almost no adult education program. We, the staff, knew that the dearth of adult offerings needed to be rectified, but we thought we'd start with that launching program for responsible and joyful Christian living, which in our tradition is confirmation. So I led our staff in developing a revised program for 8th graders rather than 6th graders. Really wanted to push it to high school, but parents were already saying, after they graduate 8th grade, I don't have them enough under my thumb to be able to control them enough to get them there. So 8th grade. With an intended outcome to foster discipleship, living as a Christian in the world, not just church membership. So we designed a number of more intense, short-term retreat-like experiences spread out over about a year and a half's time that would focus on a more discipleship behaviors rather than just church behaviors, adding serving Jesus, Jesus in the world to what had been a very churchy program. Well, with a new program planned, we called a parents' meeting for a Sunday afternoon. I was to be the lead presenter, and when the hour for the meeting came, all of the chairs we had set up were full, and we began. I explained the new program. In my perspective, the meeting seemed to be going well, as we weren't getting very many questions, and most of the parents were nodding and smiling politely, until one dad raised his hand, and I'm going to name him Confirmation Dad. So I called on Confirmation Dad, and this is something of what he said. I don't see what's wrong with the program you want to change. It's very similar to the confirmation experience I had when I was 12 years old. I got plenty out of it. I learned something about reading the Bible and prayer and the importance of church. I thought it was fine, and for my child, I still think it's a good program. By the way, he said, and if that program I went through at the time was wrong or deficient, are you saying that I was not given a proper Christian education? That there's something wrong or deficient in my practice of Christianity? I don't recall my precise response. (laughs) I really didn't mean to criticize him. And I'm sure if I had been able to nuance my answer, I would have said something like, no, 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 don't take it personally. I'm I'm not saying there was anything wrong with your confirmation experience. It's just the world has changed so much since you were 12. You know, that former alignment we used to have between Christianity and culture is kind of breaking down. There's a difference, sometimes tremendous difference in these days between um, being a churchgoer and and acting as a Christian. In evangelical circles, they would sometimes say, you know, uh, living in a garage doesn't make you a car. Living in a firehouse doesn't make you a fire truck. Neither does going to church by itself make you a Christian. Well, in the new program, we want to focus more on discipleship rather than church membership, how to behave as a Christian in the world, in school, in home, and caring for others. 
Furthermore, all of the research shows and Christian educators are advocating confirmation needs to be pushed later on when people are really ready to deal with the questions. Uh, maybe even eighth grade is too young, but that's a compromise. So I'm sure I wanted to respond something like that to confirmation, Dad. And I'm also sure I was nowhere nearly that articulate. Um, while I don't recall my words, I do vividly recall his bodily response. To me, when I finished responding to his questions, with this face that he had on the rest of the meeting. After that meeting, a lay couple who were friends and mentors to me uh, gave me some feedback. They caringly chastised me and said, in effect, I had embarrassed the man. I had judged and challenged the adequacy of his faith and something, of course, one should never do in a group setting. Well, some 30 years later, I know my pastoral response could have been better, but over the years, my conviction has grown that one of the greatest deficits facing Christians in 21st century North America is in fact the one we were trying to address beginning with that confirmation program, which is intentional faith development for adults. Yes, we want and our kids should know about what it means to be a Christian. We want our children to grow up as Christians. But living as a Christian is not kid stuff. There's a reason why the emphasis on intentional faith development for adults has grown markedly in the intervening years. In 1991, Lauren Mead developed a sweeping perspective on church history in his book, The Once and Future Church. And he lays out three time periods for all of the span of Christian history. It gives me a sense why Christian educators in our time are so focused now on adult faith formation. When Mead said there are basically three eras, pre-Constantinian, Constantinian, and post-Constantinian, with, of course, Constantinian or Constantine from the 4th century being the pivotal figure. Pre-Constantinian, he said, was the church up until the legalization of Christianity. It is, in fact, one of the illegal religions in the empire because Christians, along with Jews, refused to, to the act of offering incense in public to the emperor, which was an act of worshiping the emperor as God. And Jews and Christians, of course, as monotheists, couldn't do that, so they risked persecution and sometimes martyrdom. The early church fathers were writing at that time that the blood of the martyrs was seeding the church. There was a very thick boundary, tight boundary, between church and culture. To come into the church meant to come out of culture, to become a different sort of person during that time. The emphasis was on adults and converting adults from being Romans to being Christians. Along came Constantine, who in 313 legalized Christianity, and by the end of that century, Christianity was the legal religion of the empire. Now everyone is baptized. There is no boundary between church and culture. The church, which had once been that persecuted minority, once Constantine moves his capital and builds over in Constantinople, the church fills in all the pomp and circumstance that used to belong to imperial worship and order hierarchy and questions and disputes over authority were all debated and settled. Christianity and culture, Christianity and civilization merged 
mission was no longer on the doorsteps of the church. It was pushed out to the boundaries of the empire beyond which the barbarians were. And that mission, meaning we go someplace else, certainly held sway up through the 19th century. This view of Christianity as the religion of the empire, at least of the one who rules, held from the 4th century was not seriously challenged until the American Revolution. And even then, despite the constitutional disestablishment of Christian churches at a national level, the power of cultural Christianity for both much of Europe and the Americas held on through about the first half of the 20th century. Still in that Constantinian era when several of us in the room were born. But in our lifetimes, we've been moving now post-Constantinian. Mission is again on the doorstep of the church. You heard about downtown for good. Many of you participated an example of. Various kinds of Christianity have sometimes are compatible with what the culture is doing and sometimes in conflict. And you can recall any number of issues we're dealing with today from sexuality, war, um, the role of religion in public schools, personhood amendments and abortion rights, use of science, just a few of the sometimes conflicted areas. You'll note in recent decades, Roman Catholics, Episcopalians, Lutherans are all retrieving the ancient practice of what's called the adult catechumenate, the teaching of adults as to what Christianity is. The United Methodist Disciple Bible Series, living the questions that you all know of here, are also developed during this time because there is a difference between being a member and participant in the culture around us and being Christian. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what Paul wrote to the young Christian community in Rome, searching how to live as Romans and as Christians. One of the Greek words for church in the New Testament is ekklesia. It means an assembly called out called out from the host culture, educated and formed into a distinct people to go back into that culture to work with God for the healing and transformation of the world. In Romans, Paul's writing to the ecclesia, the called out community in Rome. One of the most important questions he addresses in what he writes that's important to address in any age is, what time is it? What's the critical time that it is. Paul's answer was, Christians live in a breach between ages, between worlds, between what was and what will be. For Paul believed that God, working in Jesus of Nazareth and raising Jesus from the dead, inaugurated a new age, a new world, a new, and this is not exaggerating to say it this way, a new empire of God that would replace the empire of Caesar. The power, rules, and behaviors of the old worlds were crumbling, even as the new creation groaned in labor pains because the new world was crowning, to borrow from Paul's language. And though the physical eyes of anybody who looked around in that day would have seen the power of Rome with its roads and armies and domination and wealth built on slave labor and remarkably engineered aqueducts and public buildings, all the things we associate with being Rome, Paul, through the eyes of faith, said, 
who believed in the action of God and Jesus Christ was cracking the Roman world. And Paul's call to Christians in Rome was to leave the Roman age in order to live as Christians. That's what really captured my attention for this morning. What was that world Paul was called? Paul called Christians to leave? In the Roman world's very powerful culture affected all aspects of daily life. In the Roman world, peace was brought through superior military strength and terror. In the Roman world, fathers ruled households. Slavery was considered normal, and use of force in the home and, the, and in the culture to keep slaves obedient was expected. At dinner parties, the wealthy ate first and to excess, the less well-off ate and drank leftovers if there were any. Especially in the outlying areas of the empire, such as Palestine, debt left masses of people without land, adequate food, or hope that life would ever be anything more than bare subsistence. It's no wonder that in the Lord's Prayer, the three positions are these. For bread, because the people were always hungry. For forgiveness of debt, because dignity was effaced by the burden of debt. And to be spared the test, which some scholars think was the temptation of a debt-burdened, hungry people to try to embrace violence as a pathway to peace. Keeping masses in debt and hungry, keeping the peace through crucifixion, slavery, and violence, that's what it meant to rule as a Roman. Those actions were the foundation of the Roman way of peace, what is known as the Pax Romana. And what did Paul write about? the peace of Christ, the Pax Christi. He wrote specifically in contrast to the culture around him. For Paul ta taught that Christ in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Paul taught at the Lord's table everyone is to begin eating at the same time, not one to excess and then the others get leftovers. And the Lord's table is to be treated as an expression of radical hospitality. Being a Christian, rather than being just part of the culture, required a transformative change of mind. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. The word for transformed in Greek is the root of our word metamorphosis. As a butterfly looks different from a caterpillar, so the mind of a Christian looks different from a mind shaped by the powerful culture of our day. Different, possibly, in so many ways. I'm just going to name now a number of issues, uh, sometimes stated in the form of questions. I'm not trying to prejudge what the answer to this is. Simply to say that when we consider being a Christian as involving thinking, feeling, and acting, how do we think, feel, and act as Christians in regard to these? What's your relationship with money? Is it yours to earn how you will and do with as you will? Or do we think of ourselves in some way as stewards? How does your faith shape the ways you express your sexuality? When the U.S. goes to war, should there be a moral and ethical dimension to our decision? 
what is the time? Where are we at in terms of race relations in the United States? And why does the answer matter to us? What kind of global economy might both increase prosperity and decrease the gap between rich and poor? Which is a more Christian response in regard to homosexuality? The direction in which our culture and the courts are moving or the position the United Methodist Church has staked out for the last 40 years? What does it mean to exercise dominion over the earth to fulfill that Genesis command when the ice is melting? How should we raise our children in a culture where we push the adult world right to their fingertips? And when we speak of our children, do we mean my family alone, our church family alone, or should the definition of our children be considerably broader? For example, is the relationship between being a Christian, being a parent, and Central American children on our border? When it comes to faith, how do we make science our friend without making it our God? Might we do something in the church to teach civil discourse and how to listen with generous minds and then practice what we learn in a way that makes a difference in how we discuss in public all of these issues and questions I've just named? How has your faith, your education as a Christian, affected what you think, feel, and do about these and tens of others of live and serious issues in our culture? Now, if you're just a little overwhelmed thinking about everything I just mentioned, great, I've accomplished my purpose. Because <laughs> so am I. A confirmation level of Christian education is insufficient to address this, these, and the host of other issues. We just have to think more deeply about it. Anybody crossing your arms yet? Building our capacity as a people of faith to deal with such issues is exactly what we ought to be doing in our adult Christian education programs. Do not be conformed, but be transformed is tough work. I've thought often about confirmation data over the years, as you can imagine, um, and I've wondered now, if I had a chance to go back and say something to him, what, what would I say? This is my best response. Can we agree that Jesus deserves to be served by an educated church? When you and I were growing up, there was a lot of assumed overlap between church and culture, between Christianity and American culture, church, home, school. We assumed they worked together, that church and home aligned enough, the lessons from one place were reinforced in the other two. And that assumption of alignment goes back, in some ways, 17 centuries. When you and I were growing up, the purpose of confirmation was to be confirmed in the faith in which we were raised. We can't make those assumptions anymore. We can't assume church, family, and home are on the same page. And we can't assume that what the church did to form people in faith in the 1950s and 60s is working today. Jesus deserves to be served by an educated church. Religion is ever more prominent in the world, evidencing the power to kill and heal, wound and reconcile, destroy and make new. When Christians pick up the Bible and interpret, when we Christians express our convictions about who Jesus is and what he requires of us, 
we initiate some of the most potentially dangerous and potentially life-giving actions the human race has ever known. The private practices of reading the Bible, praying, of course we should teach our young to do these, teach by precept and example, and of course we need to promote the importance of worship. But in this crazy, wonderful, complex world in which we live, with so much uncertainty, with technology driving us faster than we may be able to keep up with, we, your staff, think it's important to take more time, more intentional time, to provide the opportunities for our members to grow in discipleship, to evidence a mature faith, an adult faith. Jesus deserves to be served by an educated church, a church that can work with God for the healing of the world in the world. And we want to make sure we do our part to foster that kind of people, a people who are not conformed to this world, but be, are being transformed by the renewal of their minds in order that we can all together discern and do the will of God. And I wonder if I had answered that, would he have crossed his arms?